Will there ever be a point in the future where we've discovered all the ideas of philosophy, all the philosophical notions of a society have been discovered? Or is it a purely infinite iterative process that only once new societies and communities have been created will we develop new philosophies for understanding that existence? Welcome back to episode nine of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. I'm Joe with my co-host here, John. We're going to kick off these ideas and get right to it. All right, let's just get right into the questions as per usual. So the questions for today are really revolving around game theory, and uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more into that in a bit. But here's the questions. What is our definition of game theory? What is the role of instinct in shaping the landscape of decisions? How does personal decision making fit into a rational compass? How does a culture's decisions influence the manifestation of war and economic trade wars? And given that these questions are pretty complex and uh, to be quite thorough, it might take us some time to really get through them. So we might not actually get to all these questions, just fair warning, and we might break it up into two parts. But let's see where we get going. And uh, Joe, I'll just pose this question over to you. What is your definition of game theory? So when I look at how we break down game theory from the mathematical approach and the logistical approach, there's kind of an added layer that I personally don't think really gets incorporated into the way we look at game theory. So in its simplest form, it's a set of models that can help strategic interactions with decision makers. And when we look at rational decisions, there are so many layers that we can look at of how individuals in a group or in a two-way interaction can come to a conclusion. And if we wanted to break this down mathematically, you can look at one of the most common examples, which is the prisoner's dilemma, which for those who haven't heard it, essentially looks at two rational decision makers being asked questions that hinge on the possible results of their friend or their ulterior uh, motives that they have in this situation, which for the prisoner's dilemma usually revolves around getting a lower prison sentence to sell out your friend or your um, co-conspirator or whatever it may be, or not sell them out, but save your friend and have a longer prison sentence if neither of you talk. So that's usually what revolves around the definitions of game theory, but it has so many more deep applications. And to me, it, the added level that makes it super interesting is when we think about how you have to understand intrinsic motives for different individuals and how you can try and predict those motives for rational and irrational decision makers. Yeah, and in this case with the ultimatum of saving your friend to, well, I guess not saving your friend, but saving yourself <laughs> and sacrificing your friend. But maybe it's more of a priority, right? Maybe it's more rational to prioritize your own life in this case than the person you're trying to kind of dig up dirt under to reduce your prison sentence. And so in my eyes, it's, well, what is rational in the context of, can this person also live with that decision that they made? Because that's a big part of it is if there is some level of guilt associated with their decision to throw their friend under the bus to gain some positive benefit. And this, if we frame it like this, I feel like we can kind of ripple its relevance to a lot of different uh, situations that we find ourselves in quite often. It's like, well, do I, do I prioritize myself over this individual full well, knowing that my benefit is their loss, 
right? And their disadvantage, I will profit off of it more or less, maybe in, in terms of the time I have being a little bit more free and outside of some borders, in this case, prison. And, and, and so I, I, I kind of want to just jump in on that, the idea of rational selection when there's a, in this case, a zero sum uh uh, framing here with it. And is that true? Maybe maybe there isn't necessarily a zero sum. Maybe there's another alternative for decision making. We can we can choose to be more strategic with this type of game theory decision making. I think that really all of us partake in, in game theory dilemmas and scenarios all the time. I think in our work environments, our personal environments, our relationship environments, all of it actually revolves around this idea of game theory. And why that's important and understanding of this situation goes so deep, but even on its surface level, why this is really important is because if you can predict the interdependent factors that go into making decisions that require more than one person, so any N plus two number of people that that are involved in making some sort of a decision must rely on this deeper understanding of human motives and goals. And when you look at these situations or setups where you have a benefit of some sort and this balanced approach of how much you give versus how much you receive and then understanding this implication to multiple actors and multiple players in this setup can really help people understand and achieve the situation that they're trying to work through much better and getting even more deep on this this idea it's understanding your own motives for approaching a problem or a solution as well as someone else's and how these can weave together to create a systematic approach to making a decision. Because often I feel like we can make a decision where it's the two paths right in front of you. But what if the two paths right in front of you have overlapping bridges that go forward depending on the decisions you make? So looking at almost a butterfly effect of how your decision hinges further down the road, but then also understanding how your decision impacts another player's decisions. And then from there, this weaving pattern of being able to propagate or look forward in your interactions with people. And it's a complicated process, but I want to try and break this down into as many distinct compartments as we can to really understand how game theory really plays into our lives on a daily basis. So I think we can take it from, and I mentioned this a little bit, but there is some type of contrast in how we are psychologically disposed to the ideas of prioritization versus sacrifice. Because these are, depending on how you frame it to yourself, literally, they're, they're artificial concepts that we use to then validate a decision-making system. In this case, whether or not we want to throw our friend under the bus. Is that a sacrifice or is that a priority for the individual, right? And when it, when it becomes a sacrifice, I think there's a different set of conclusions. There's a different method in which our thinking patterns transpire, usually some type of, of guilt internally. And if you communicate it externally to other people, then you can have shame. I can't believe you did that, right? Full well knowing that you were going to cause this type of pain in this individual and you still did it. And so I, I feel like this is the the contrast here is that the prioritization mindset, the, the mind that is confident in the ability to uh, self-preserve perhaps, that that might be a rational disposition, whereas sacrifice already leads the mind into realms associated with guilt and then shame, potentially. And so could you say that it's ever rational 
to sacrifice something, right? It is rash, it is sacrifice led by an instinctual mechanism mechanism versus priority, prioritization. Is that led by something different, right? You see what I'm saying there? Mm-hmm. And what, what it really tries to make me think of is as one individual has to estimate the sacrifice of oneself versus the sacrifices of other people or even entities as they partake in game theory, um, it's fascinating to look at the different levels at which this equilibrium exists because can you win at game theory? Is it possible to win this situation? And at all levels from interpersonal to economic, I think the same principles apply where there are individuals who must sacrifice something, but is this net loss or the loss and sacrifice eventually leading to a net gain? So it's effort or sacrifice or surrender that must occur in the short term for a greater impact or success in the long term. And this weaving kind of came really into fruition from, from the works of like John von Neumann and other mathematicians and logisticians who have looked at the ways we act with each other. And it's a really complicated topic, but trying to break down how you can approach this in your decisions as almost a filter in your mind. We have these preset filters in the way we approach our interpersonal relationships, our relationships at work. But can you add on this foundation or this layer of game theory? Or is that ethical to add on a layer of game theory in your approach? And I think it depends on how you build these starting premises. And I'm, I'm, I want to, again, go back to this sacrifices versus prioritization, because there's an important point to be made here in that sacrifice, the terminology itself works on a set of premises that are associated with a zero-sum game. A prioritization compass, the person that basically doesn't have the terminology of sacrifice built into their decision-making, then is more of realizing that there's a different type of game that's being played here. There's a game where this person already made a bad decision and that if I throw them under the bus, it's not necessarily a bad net net sum where this person's disadvantaged, right? And I'm being advantaged from it. It's more so that I am allowing a, a, a portion of myself to grow and this person's going to be still held back necessarily. And so there is a net positive in, in the context of prioritizing. But if you use the terminology of sacrifice, the guilt then wipes into your mind and then slowly degrades your ability to be productive with your decision itself. And so there's this psychological element that is going to guide how you're going to optimize the game. In itself, this is something that could be led by some in instinctual mechanism, depending on how you know egotistical you might be, or or how uh, composed you might be towards validating some narcissistic composition of yourself. And 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 so, like this is where I think it it gets really interesting because the game we play depends on the terminology we use to describe how decisions are validated in our own heads. Um, so, uh, just just briefly, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. It really brings to my mind the point that in most games that we play on a greater scale, it, re it requires two-way participation for this game to be successful, but not game theory. There is not a two-way intrinsic requirement for this game to happen. And I think that's really interesting. We're only one minimum one of the players must be partaking in the game for it to enact. And that's somewhat terrifying when you think about all the implications for the decisions that are made on a daily hourly basis that you may not even know that you're playing in the game, but you are. 
So is the goal, let's 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 talk about goals then. There's there's two different types of goals, right? Is the goal a individualistic game where the game centers and revolves around the individual's prosperity or is it to say let's take a step back and it's actually the collective gain i think these are the two different dichotomies that you can propose as to the common game theory that is being used by our society and many societies at large and i think if you look at different governmental institutions you can you can analyze the way they've enacted legislation depending on what type of game they're trying to actually play so what, what, what game would you say is, is scalable, right? Because this is the idea. Because I, I, I would say like it, it all has restraint limits based on the number of prosperity you're trying to actually arise in a society, right? If, if it's a collective gain versus an individual gain, what actually allows more scalability? So I wonder, can, can one have collective game theory from an individual perspective, or is it intrinsically the individual using the collective organization as a tool for their own individual game theory? So maybe in a collective game theory, there are individuals, there is people playing the individual game theory. Collectively playing it for themselves. Right, right. So they're basically telling the collective, play this game. I'm going to play my own individual game so that I can profit off of your silly, irrational decisions that won't benefit yourself. I'm going to take the, the net profit of your own ability to sacrifice and I'm going to prioritize, not sacrifice, your own sacrifices so that I can profit off of it. And so this is a really interesting idea then, because then it draws the illusion of, of collective versus individual prosperity and how collective is, is potentially a delusion and that it's not something that can really be scaled because there always will be individuals that have the individual game in their, in their heart. No matter how you say like, okay, well, what, what if we get everyone on the same page of, of collective prosperity? It's not gonna happen. There's always going to be those people who are playing that individual game because, you know, and this is maybe where we can talk about the idea of the motivational factors of the game itself, right? Is if it's if it's a idea of ennobling uh, knowledge or it's a victory type game. Um, and I, I heard these two term, terminologies uh, recently, but there's there's a contrast between what is called philia nikia, which is the love of victory, versus philia sophia, which is the love of wisdom. And I'd be curious to see how we could fit these two terms to describe really, really uh, bold brackets between human psyches and how those then shape the individual game versus the collective game, right? Because they're very different if you want to win versus if you want to simply uh, learn, right? I think there's a little bit different there. Could you describe both of those terms again in just a little more detail? Those sound really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So philia and Nike is, it, I mean, if you think about Nike shoes, Nike is, is basically using the terminology Nike because it symbolizes victory. And so for sports, right, that's where Nike comes from. And it's like you want to win the game, right? So that's Nike, right? And so you put the term philia, which is to love, right? You have philia Nike, which means to love a victory. And then the other terminology, philia Sophia, is Sophia is a root of knowledge and wisdom. So it's the love of wisdom in that context. And so the the idea that I'm I'm trying to allude to is that is is the game to 
love the idea of winning to 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 sacrifice others right and that's what i would call the philia nikea version of game theory and and then there's the other contrast which is the philia sophia the love of wisdom it doesn't matter who wins because there's another game played psychologically and that as long as we prosper in our own individual knowledge uh, aptitudes then we can you know build a scalable system right you see do you see where that goes yeah so it makes me wonder how do you take your perception of a situation and break down the different losses and gains that you're hoping to win from this because everything has deeper meanings, everything. And when you look deeper into the actions of a situation and you say, okay, on the surface level, it could be A, B, or C are my options and alternatives. But then when you look a little bit deeper into A and B, you can see that the repercussions further down or the gain that may come is far greater. And when you start to categorize these things into a love of wisdom or power or instantaneous gratification, you have to reflect upon your own mechanisms and why these things are pleasing to you. Are you craving instantaneous gratification or do you have this patience which you're willing to play the long game, the long game theory of this set of pieces that are all interdependently moving in order to achieve a firm but strong long-term goal. Right. And this, this also alludes into the idea of the finite versus infinite game, right? This is where we can really draw a contrast because the finite game is a game based on victory. It's a game based on finite systems where we know the end happens when you get this many points or in like the game of sports, right? You get this many points, you win, right? That's a victory. It's a finite game and it has a time period that is well-defined and we can understand it versus the infinite game which is the love of wisdom, perhaps. And in this game, there is no definitive end line. There's no border into which we can say, hey, you're, you're wrong and I'm right. This is, and, and, and this is where I think the dispute and the controversy occurs is that, well, how do you know that you're right? Why would you think that in the first place? Aren't you just eluded by your own desire for victory that you want to be right? In the end of the day, it's impossible to know. And it doesn't build a cooperative model of communication either. So it's like there's a, a, a maybe a malware, I would almost describe it as a cultural malware in our obsession for victory and that there is some uh, agent in our brain or mind that is causing us to, to want to win, to, to play the game in a way that only benefits a person while disadvantaging another person, right? In, in, the, in the context of victory, you, you know, the loser, there's going to be a winner and there's a loser. But why does it necessarily have to be that? Because that, that infers that the premises of reality are a zero-sum game. But in, in the realm of wisdom, could you say that, that it's a zero-sum game? What would you describe it? What's like the alternative, I would say, to a zero-sum game? There are so many layers to what you just said, and I want to just break down a couple of them. So I think going backwards, the last part of this opens up this idea of the existentialism ideas of the zero-sum game and how we can approach what is the, the real goal. It has to be intrinsic. If you start at zero, oscillate, and end at zero, your only successes or losses are for yourself. So that is the finite game for how you can perceive the start and the end point. But then looking at the infinite possibilities of wisdom... That now makes me wonder, will there ever be a point in the future where we've discovered all the ideas of philosophy, all the philosophical notions of a society have been discovered, or is it a purely infinite iterative process that 
Only once new societies and communities have been created will we develop new philosophies for understanding that existence. So it is somewhat infinite in, in the realm of the capability to discover new ideas. And now when you look at the finite aspect of that, it's just this instantaneous tangent. You have to look at these momentary decisions of how you can either choose to have a net positive or a net negative instantaneous life. Because if you start at zero and end at zero, then it incorporates a broad spectrum of existential philosophies, but also in this instantaneous purpose, what's the point? How are we looking at how individuals are choosing to make their decisions and why? Is it is it a factor of instinct? Is it a factor of long-term exponentiation of success? Are you looking to bring the infinite game into your finite life? And I think those people are the ones who create legacies, these massive legacies and say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my generations down the line. I will make sacrifices in this life so that my further generations can have great success. They can play the finite game. I'm playing the infinite one. Mm -hmm. And those are, those are broad ideas. So let's, let's bring some observations to this and, and really justify these claims, right? Because in the, the Philia Sophia version, the love of wisdom here, the reason it's not a zero-sum game is because I can profit off the ideas of previous generations. For example, Isaac Newton. With the laws of physics, I am able to then create some new types of innovation and build upon the system. However, with a victory, I can't necessarily build on a victory. It's done. It's over. They've The game has been won. That game was finite, right? I can't jump back into that game and actually progress it because the results have already been made when it comes to any finite objective, whether or not it's, you know, discovering some, some new type of... Uh, idea in a specific field. It's like, okay, that's done. Right. Right. But if you, if you build some type of formulaic version of it, I can expand on that. Right. As opposed to some concrete, this is how it is. It's like, well, no, not really. I can't expand on that. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Is there a difference between ideas or fundamentals that existed before discovery versus created? And what makes me think about that is the laws of physics that Isaac Newton discovered existed before him. They were naturally occurring, but he was the one who discovered and founded and quoted these laws into existence. But how would we compare that to other types of discoveries that are not naturally occurring that must be created and innovated on? So he was creating philosophies or ideas and structures that play the infinite game and it had always been infinite. They existed before, during, and after his perception of them, but we were able to grasp them now because he noted them as opposed to ideas that did not come into existence until an individual mind playing the finite game decided to discover or create them. Expand on that a little bit more. I want to, I want to see exactly what you're talking about there. <laughs> so when we look at laws, physical laws, natural laws, or aspects of nature that we are engineering and creating, we can look back and obviously we've iterated through history and used the results of the finite games of the past, like philosophers and mathematicians and poets to better structure and iterate on their ideas. But at what level do you say this is an original fundamental idea versus something that has been noted but has always been in existence. So when we look at 
massive astronomical discoveries or or even micro physical discoveries they've always been there they've always existed i didn't have to combine three different elements or compounds in order to create gravity he figured it out but it had always been there as opposed to new types of elements that are on the periodic table that are only in existence for instantaneous micro amounts of time those required adaptations for our physical limitations to create them for an instantaneous moment elemental ideas versus innovative ideas yeah i i think it depends on the perspective in which you're viewing these systems so if you take the human perspective then well these things were never discovered because they never circulated our human consciousness but if you have if you have the capacity to think that the universe has its own type of conscious system of operation well that system of operation has always known the game the game has always been self-evident it's imposed in the rule system the physics that we call it and so it's like well there is a there is a line that we have to draw in terms of perception in in events of perception and so maybe from the universal perspective there is always a constant set of knowledge that is being unearthed by our own motivation to put it into an abstract form of thinking known as human language Right. And, and it's in the process of converting these types of physical phenomenon into a language that is communicable and repeatable. And that's the key, right, is, is, is the repetition of the idea and how that stands against the test of time. And so this is where I think we can somewhat draw the contrast between uh, the perspectives of the universe versus the perspectives of the individual. And then on a larger scale, the human society, the, the human conscious thought, if you were to assume that all of humanity could converge into one conscious entity known as humanity. Um, but from the perspective of humanity's consciousness, there is a plenty, a plethora of value to be added to our psychiatric uh, mechanisms and so forth, right? And, and so that's where I say we have to draw the line and say, okay, that's the universal consciousness that we're trying to, you know, look at with a microscope, look at with a telescope, and, you know, look at it with drugs, perhaps. These are the three different places we have to discover and, and figure out the way in which these mechanisms operate, right? And in, in, in a big experiment known as humanity for example. And so the, the game theory here might might be a little bit more existential um, if you take that universal lens. And so the existential aspect of it is, well, what is left, what is left that needs to be discovered? And these are questions that we have to ask. And this is what gives people purpose. This is what pe gives people a reason to wake up and not kill themselves, right? This is the simple answer of it. And, and because every day we're confronted and as, as challenging as it is to, to deal with these types of thoughts, every day we're confronted, well, why be alive today, right? Why, why, why actually go through the motions of this conveyor belt of action? And, and so it's up to us to figure out what game we want to play. And this comes all the way back down to the finite versus infinite game and whether or not you are actually looking at a long-term timescale of the game, right? Because the game plays out whether you like it or not. It's going to play. And, it, and it, if you only want to play a par part of that game, so be it. But don't tell me that, that that's going to be the benefit of everyone else. Right. And this is where people, I think, have their their own inherent contradictions within their dispositions for telling them about their love of victory, for example. Exactly. And I think that now leads to the question of how do individuals take the levels of purpose? So I think humanity in its essence is just finding reasons to have purpose. But when we look at why 
people make decisions. There's all the levels we've heard of the id, the ego, the superego. We won't get into those, but looking even more simplistically is instinctual. When we look at the hierarchies of decision-making that exist and the societal structures that we have in place already, when do those fail? And I think when those fail are when instinctual decisions must be made. The rules and frameworks of society and how people interact with each other are abandoned once threatening instinctual decisions must be made. And those are the most interesting moments. They're, they're, they're nearly primal in the way we look at how people make decisions and the, the level of consciousness that plays into the game theory, I think is also abandoned. Yeah. And, and instinct is an interesting one to, to pick up on because instinct in itself is an entity. It's a psych, it's a part of your psyche that is somewhat been playing a game that you don't really know. It's a game that you are unaware of and it's been being, being played through this experiment of humanity for the last however many billions of years, right? With the first first creation of uh, organic life and then that propagating down the evolutionary chain into some system that builds an awareness of that ability, of that game, that subconscious or unconscious game. And so there's two different games you can play within a human mind. You can be aware of that instinctual level and then, and then try to identify the unconscious means for which that instinct changes and adapts and reacts. You know, your flight or flight responses, your rest and relaxation response. Those are the different contrasts that we label as the parasympathetic and sympathetic nerve system. And so in, in these systems, we can then arise some type of mechanism by which our instinct operates on. And, and the biggest problem right now is that the amount of causality our instinct has to react to, especially in the technological era, the digital era, is just so vast. And a lot of our instincts that were shaped on much more natural technologies like light, like uh, uh, predators and, and basic tribal functioning and social culture building and so forth. But when you expose that instinctual mechanism to a cultural unit, in this case, a global cultural unit that it's never been familiarized with, all the different idiosyncratic elements of the various cultures around the world, well, then how can you say that your instinct at any level is more rational than your own conscious ability? Because it's being based on a set of tribalistic principles that are low in the variance spectrum. And when you actually increase that variance to what we have today, we are basically maximizing our own instinct's reaction to variance across a wide range of cultures. And so this is where we get into a lot of big problems, right? I love that. Yeah. And that's exactly right. So when we try and think about and conceptualize the existence of different generations of, of human beings and homo sapiens for hundreds to thousands of years, when you think about some of the earlier humans in existence thousands of years ago and the frameworks that they had, not only socially, but mentally, try and think about the brain's capacity to interpret, live within, and be an interacting player or agent in that framework which existed around it. But when we look at now, we obviously know that we're far more advanced. Our communication, our interpersonal skills, all of these new traits that we've developed are merely a result of the framework that's been created now. And I think the reversibility works where an individual now could go back then with the I don't know, preconceived notions of the existences of how they interacted then to try and survive. But the, the, 
inverse of that, where someone from that era could not nearly survive in this, this day and age. And it's interesting because the brain's mechanisms of survival are nearly the same. The same brains existed then as they do now, for the most part. There are conformational changes which have happened over a few thousand years, but when we're talking on the scales of evolution for thousands of years and how individuals are capable at perceiving the games in which they play in, prehistoric, or not even, not, not nearly even prehistoric, just thousands of years ago, individuals in those societies and cultures did not have the capabilities implemented from the structures around them to think on the same levels as we do. And we could say, is that a factor of broad education? Are we being exposed to these frameworks earlier on? And now looking forward, what frameworks and existences in the future are we capable of without even knowing it? Because those institutional or even intrinsic or extrinsic frameworks in our surroundings don't even exist yet. Mm -hmm. What are our brains capable of perceiving in a communication and structural manner that we haven't even tapped into yet because it doesn't exist in the framework around us? Right, I think we need to build a little bit of some biological constraints to the system. So just taking a little bit about that idea of taking some prehistoric adult, not a child, but an adult, someone who's developed in a, in a, in a prehistorical society or a few thousand years ago, as you said, and then you plant them in their society today, you know, would they be encumbered by such levels of, of novel stimuli that their mechanisms of anxiety, their flight or flight responses would be turned up to maximum and they would crumble in that face. And, and, and maybe from that, you could, you could then make the observation that as humans, the game we're playing is to actually maximize our anxiety because our anxiety is really a triggered response that tells us something's not right, right? Something is going on that is potentially going to harm the survival of you as a species. And this is something that then ties into our own uh, fear responses as well, how we manage and deal with the fear of, of all the novelty that surrounds us in the world. And, and is it then that we could make the claim that increasing the amount of anxiety at an incremental level, right? Because the person that we just transplanted from way back when in there, they, they, they basically will crumble in the face of all this overlooming anxiety. But maybe, maybe the progression of humanity is to subtly increase the anxiety as we can deal with it. And those that can't deal with that level of novelty then crumble in the face of anxiety. And so I, maybe I'll just stop there and, and see what you think about this evolution of anxiety. I think... It's really fascinating to try and think about the evolution of anxiety. That's incredible because now I think as we look at the macro, the macro scope of things and balance the problems and survival mechanisms and instinctual habits that we have to rely on obviously change given the framework around us. But anxiety at its core is a neurological alarm system to tell you when it's not necessarily physical pain, but situational pain for the instincts that you may or may not be familiar with, or these underlying feelings of, of collaboration or belonging or pr productivity and success, whatever it may be, there's hundreds of different indications that can say this neurological alarm is going off, but hundreds of hundreds and thousands of years ago, do you think that there were the same levels quantitatively of anxiety in survivalistic cultures? Because when, when you're primary, relative. exactly. Yeah. It's all relative. These, these anxiety levels are indicative of the familiarity. And this is something we talked about in the last episode, which is this familiarity bias, how, how familiar we are with ideas and how 
we're more willing to take on new ideas, the more familiar we are with them because it reduces anxiety. But when we maximize anxiety, how then does that affect the rate in which we're evolving in this game, this love of novelty and wisdom, right? Because wisdom, in, in a sense, is a form of novelty. It's a form of change and adaption to these new informational beasts of creation. And, and so is, is, is the evolutionary game a game of anxiety, right? Is it a game of fear? Is it a game of love? These are, the, these are the inherent games that when we abstract it down to the level of an emotional creature, as we are mammalians, the, it is a very tough idea. And, and it's also because anxiety is causal to uh, emotions of fear and to love as well. Whether or not you love something will also affect how anxious you are to it. And you might not even know the reason that you love it. What is preference? What is favoritism? Why is it that we, and, and maybe we can deduce back down to that familiarity system, how familiar were your previous ancestral, ancestral generations with this entity in question, this behavioral system, this mechanistic technology, whatever it is, there is something to be said about anxiety as a symptom of our emotions, a symptom of the root emotions like love and fear. And that's the ultimate contrast and collision between how different entities and cultures form. On what basis does that anxiety then manifest? How anxious is a culture? How, how much is it that anxiety is then pushing them to make decisions in this way or that way? And, and I think these are the guiding principles that we can look at when we're talking about these types of game theories is, you know, that this is the whole problem with looking at it on a computational scale is that you're removing the very aspect of what makes humans human. And in and, and our own uh, mammalian circuitry associated with play and emotion, right? These are probably interrelated at some level. But to kind of wrap up here, it is this emotional game that is arising the symptom of anxiety. And and just, just for your own thinking style, I, I would challenge our viewers here to somewhat assess what items cause them the most anxiety. And then condition themselves because this is something that's very, very important. If you're conditioned to a stimuli response, maybe you're, you're dealing with the anxiety of the response, how will that then shape you to make larger sets of decisions that have encumbered levels of anxiety? You have to build yourself up to it. You can't just, you know, go out in, 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 in the world and randomly just take on these huge big decisions because you might be crippled by anxiety. And no matter how valuable what you think is to be true, you won't be able to say it because your own nerves will prevent you from doing that because of the social outcast, because of the potential uh, societal norms that you're violating. And, and all this ties back down into the, the root of emotion as a, as a central theory for which game theory prospers. That's a fascinating way to wrap up the episode. Thanks everyone. All right. This has been episode nine of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. Thanks for listening and you can watch us next week. Thank you. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man. 